This is the Monday, October 16, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back to a date of infamy, September 9th, 1971, when inmates seized control of Attica Correctional Facility in western New York State, up between Rochester and Buffalo. Protesting overcrowding and the lack of basic sanitation, the prisoners rose up taking guards and civilian workers hostage to get the state's attention. A four-day standoff resulted, ending when police and corrections officers stormed Attica, guns blazing. When the dust settled, 29 inmates and 10 guards lay dead and dying, the bloodiest prison violence since the Civil War. In the immediate aftermath, newspapers and television reported the state-sanctioned version of events, The prisoners had murdered the hostages, and that was the source of the body count. The medical examiner debunked that narrative the next day, stating that police bullets had killed those held captive. From that point on, New York officials from Governor Nelson Rockefeller on down kicked into high gear to suppress the full truth and avoid any more embarrassing revelations. So, the full truth remained buried and scoffed at for over half a century. Malcolm Bell, hired by New York State in 1973 to prosecute any cases that might arise out of its investigation, reveals what really happened when the state retook the prison. His book is The Attica Turkey Shoot, Carnage, Cover-Up, and the Pursuit of Justice. Mr. Bell is a former corporate litigator who decided in mid-career to pursue criminal law. While serving as a New York State prosecutor, he blew the whistle on the Empire State's refusal to hold law enforcement officers accountable for torture and murder that they committed during the riots. Find our guest at facebook.com slash Malcolm Bell author. Okay, now that we have the background on those days of crisis when justice fell silent, let's return to 1971 and bear solemn witness to the Attica Turkey Shoot. I'm joined on the line by Malcolm Bell, author of The Attica Turkey Shoot, Carnage, Cover-Up, and the Pursuit of Justice. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show, sir. Well, I'm very glad to do it. Thank you for having me. I was very glad that this book was put in my hands because I felt it was a story that Every American could read and should read. It may sound a little cliche, but this is the story of what happens when we get excited or we get ourselves believing that some people aren't human and aren't important, in this case, because men are behind bars. And 
it makes it all the more important why we should make sure that justice doesn't fall silent, why we should speak up and take a minute to control our passions. That's how I read it anyway. So I was very glad that I got the chance to learn what really happened. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, Attica was just sort of a buzzword, almost became a cliche. You write in the Attica turkey shoot, quote, most Americans who know anything about Attica think there was only one riot, the riot by the inmates. What happened after the police retook the prison that you felt readers, that Americans like myself, should know, especially in the light of the fact that New York State did try so hard to cover it up? Well, what was a big blur in the public mind, because the officials of the state of New York made it a big blur, was what happened during the time that the troopers, with a few correction officers who shouldn't have been there, retook the prison from the inmates. During that time, tear gas was dropped that immobilized the inmates pretty well, but about half the troopers, there were 212 troopers involved in the retaking, and about half of them fired their weapons almost entirely when they shouldn't have fired their weapons, and firing your weapon in a crowded place is pretty likely to be a crime. And in fact, the troopers committed murder. They committed assault in the first degree. They committed reckless endangerment in the first degree, which can send you away for seven years. And they shot 128 people, killing 29 inmates and 10 hostages. And except for the very first shots fired, when some inmates were holding knives at the throats of some of the hostages, very, very few of those shots were justified. Those inmate executioners, so-called, had to be picked off because they were about to kill the hostages if troopers came in. And the troopers were going to come in and take the prison then because Governor Rockefeller had ordered them to. So those guys had to be shot, which is unfortunate but necessary. After that, it was, as I say, half the troopers contained themselves and did what they should and showed professional restraint. But the other half essentially rioted with their guns, and to a large extent, that was a racially motivated riot. They had been, there had been four days of negotiation prior to the retaking of the prison, and during that time, uh, troopers had worked themselves up with racial epithets, and the inmates were calling um, them bad names, too, questioning their mothers and that sort of thing. Uh, but there was this, this racial rage and uh, the superior officers did little or nothing that I've ever discerned to contain that, to, to suppress that, to keep it from happening. So what you had uh, was a largely race riot by police. And that's what's so ugly about Attica. You don't expect um, the police to misuse their guns. You occasionally hear, uh, you often hear the phrase, a few bad apples. Well, it wasn't a few bad apples. It was dozens of New York State police. You mentioned bringing the corrections officers in there. They don't have the training for this situation. You want, I would think, in this situation, even from the outside, you don't want people who are itching on the trigger. People who have gone hunting talk about buck fever, for instance, where you start hunting movement. I say sometimes that's seems to be the most popular thing that people hunt is movement, not any animal. They just see something moving in the bushes and start squeezing off shots at it. So you don't have that professionalism here at all in those guys. They're, they're just not trained to do this. And then you're sending them in there with 
really a blank check, a license to kill, it seems, where they say retake the prison and then you assume you're going to just be able to scapegoat anything that goes wrong to, well, these prisoners started it. That's almost the thing. And you also mentioned that they invoke the idea of, well, these were their orders later. They consider invoking it, which takes you right back to Nuremberg, that infamous line that they were following orders. This is such a terrible cocktail of emotion, of racism, of anger that takes place here in the Attica Turkey shoot. Exactly, exactly. And that following orders, yeah, it was actually used in some of the um, defense talk we heard. And you're absolutely right. Nuremberg and Adolf Eichmann and Germans used that excuse and we saw through it then, but it was harder to see through it in the case of the New York State Police. The police, people thought they were supposed to go in shooting or something. That's absolutely false. Apart from picking off the executioners, those police who went in were not supposed to use their guns except as the law allows, which is to save their own life or somebody else's life or prevent imminent threat of grievous bodily injury. And they didn't observe that. They fired away. And the results were disastrous. What amazes me is that more people were not killed and wounded. There's something about the idea of men in prison and the idea that despite this constitutional prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment, it's easy for people, too easy. I always cringe a little bit, not saying that I'm better or worse than anybody else, but I look at the mistreatment or even murder of men behind bars and people tend to not care about it. It's not important to them. You take off the clothes and you just give them that prison uniform and a number. People tend to think, well, they're a prisoner, they lose their humanity. And by the same token, law enforcement, people on the other side think, well, they're uniforms and badges. And it becomes very tribal between the two sides. The police are there on one side. I imagine maybe that's one of the reasons they let these corrections officers in there who really have no business something so delicate as a hostage situation being thrown in there armed. They're just not trained for it. They're not the the right human capital for the job, so to speak. So I wanted you to tell us as a way here of giving some of the humanity back to everyone who loses their lives, just who were the men on either sides of the bars at Attica? Well, number one, as you've been pointing out, these were all human beings. On the inmate side, 54% of the population was black, 9% Puerto Rican, the rest so-called white, 20% were in for murder. They'd done serious things, many of them. Many of them hadn't, but they were all sentenced to prison, not being shot at random or tortured afterwards. On the other side, it was the state police who were not trained in riot control and were not armed properly. They were given shotguns to deal in a crowded situation, which is a recipe for disaster that happened. Terrible. The inmates were mostly city boys from downstate, New York City and so on. Not all of them, but most. And the guards and troopers were largely upstate people, all white, as I understand it. So you have these basic differences, which are allowed to grow hotter and hotter, more and more inflamed by the people who should have been in charge and said, look, cool it, you're going to have to do something. As to the training, the guards weren't trained, but neither were the police in, in this sort of a situation. And what has happened since is the correction officers have formed units specifically to deal with any such insurrection in a prison. As one correction officer sergeant put it to me and to others, so the state police will never have to go into that prison again. This time they'll be prepared and have the not only the right people, but I, I mentioned tools there as far as human capital, the people trained, but also the right weapons. The idea of going 
into that situation with a shotgun. I said earlier, and I guess we'll say a bunch more times, but this was such a recipe for disaster. If you wanted to pick the worst possible weapon that you could that's handheld that you wanted to bring in and cause maximum indiscriminate damage, I mean, the shotgun is literally a metaphor for that, for spraying pellets everywhere and hitting as many people. And I assume this is pretty close quarters, too, that they come into. It is. The inside of the prison is 200 yards square, surrounded by four cell blocks, so it makes a nice square. And that square is divided into four courtyards by a bunch of corridors that are called tunnels, but they're above ground. And on top of those corridors are what's called catwalks. They're really broad sidewalks with railings on each side. And the troopers control two of the cell blocks, and the inmates control two at the beginning, and the troopers went out on the catwalks and down the tunnels, except for one one very well-organized, disciplined trooper detail down an A tunnel, which contained itself. The other three going down the two catwalks in the remaining tunnel were just firing when they shouldn't, and there was no cause for that, and the results were tragic. I mentioned the comparisons to hunting and certainly the shotgun that's a weapon used for shooting birds. Your title, the Attica Turkey Shoot, makes me cringe a little bit every time. It's one of the things that when I saw the cover made me want to pick it up and see because, of course, it should make you cringe. We're talking about a brutal assault involving human beings, whatever crimes that are involved here. As you said, they weren't sentenced to be shot, certainly not to be tortured. I wondered how you chose that title and if you ever had any thoughts about making it something else or if that was the only one that ever really stuck. It seemed to me the best one available because before the police assault took place, the troop commander, Major John Monahan of Troop A of the New York State Police, called his officers together and he said, I do not want this to be a turkey shoot. I do not want this to be shooting fish in a barrel. But the troopers went out and disobeyed. Kind of an ironic title then when we think about it. Exactly. Exactly. Governor Rockefeller, who was in charge of everything, he was running the state then, had specifically directed that the correction officers not take part in the uh, retaking because they were too wrought up. And most of the correction officers got that message and did not take part in the retaking. Those who did take part, it was about 18 of them, claimed they never got the message. Why they were so convinced that the correction officers were too wrought up, but the state police were not too wrought up is is one of the mysteries that remains. It's a good example of what happens when you have a vacuum of leadership, when you don't have people at any level, it seems, are really ready to confront this. And the really sad things of many tragic things that come out of Attica is it really didn't need to happen. When you read about the prisoner demands, it's not as if it's one of these things that we have come to scoff at, that they want cable TV or they're not getting Monday Night Football. It's not as if they want any kind of luxury here. They want basic things like sanitation, like toilet paper, like to relieve the overcrowding. That's something where the governor, you'd think, someone in the civil structure should be easily trained to handle. And yet it doesn't happen. And that leads to this violence in order to get their point across when it seems as if they were pretty basic things that they were asking for. But it all starts with that idea of dehumanizing them, of saying, well, they're prisoners. So what? So they don't get any toilet paper and they get one shower a week or one a month or whatever. I I think that's something that as far back as when I read about Rutherford B. Hayes as president taking on this idea of prison reform, it's just so easy for people to do. They have 
have their own lives, things they're concerned about. And so they completely ignored Attica. And it's one of the things we know about democracy. If you don't give people some kind of outlet for airing their grievances, they're going to turn to violence. And that's what happens here. And then the state responds with more violence. And it just seems as if it didn't need to happen. I don't know. You, you would know better than me having researched it. Well, about having needing to happen, the proof of the reasonableness of the inmates, most of the inmates' demands, is the fact that they made 31 demands, and almost immediately, Corrections Commissioner Russell Oswald granted 28 of those 31 demands. The key demand was amnesty for crimes committed during the riot, and that became really significant because two days into the negotiations, because the inmates had, had battered the skull of a corrections officer named William Quinn, a great guy, I understand, who died two days into the negotiations. And under the felony murder doctrine, that made all 1,300 inmates who were participating in the riot guilty of murder. So what they wanted was amnesty for that. And Rockefeller said, well, I can't do that. Well, what he should have done, in my judgment and the judgment of others, was go to the prison. He refused to go to the prison. He should have gone to the prison and assured the inmates with the concurrence of Attorney General Louis Lefkowitz, who has remained strangely untalked about in this whole tragedy, the chief law enforcement officer in the state. And they should have assured the inmates that we will only prosecute the actual killers, if we can identify them beyond a reasonable doubt. That, in fact, is what my office, the prosecutor's office, ended up doing. It prosecuted two guys for the murder of Bill Quinn, convicted one of them of, of the murder and another of attempted assault because they really didn't have the evidence on him. And that was the way the system was supposed to work. It would have been so easy for Rockefeller to have come to the prison and said, that's what we'll do. And that would have prevented, I'm certain, Talking it out with the inmates, not going into D-yard, but talking through people and the, the inmates knowing he was there, that he had deigned to come to the prison, I'm sure that it would have been talked out in a few more days. It's another irony that Governor Rockefeller had presidential aspirations, was hoping to be named vice president on a ticket, always wanted to be able to rise to the highest office in the land, and yet here is his moment, and when you have a chance to lead, this is something that many of our great presidents have said, many of our successful ones. Theodore Roosevelt, when he was police commissioner of New York, they said to him, well, you could build this into a, into a great career, be mayor, be president someday because he'd already run for mayor. And he slams his fist down and he says, don't talk like that to me anytime. Anytime you get that presidential grub in your ear, which is what Lincoln called it, you're not good for anything. You start hesitating. You start making decisions on what's political and not just doing your jobs and letting the presidency find you or letting higher office find you because you've done a good job. And that seemed like the case here a little bit from reading the Attica Turkey shoot where Governor Rockefeller is so worried about how it looks that he's not just going about doing his job as if this would be the last thing that he does. And here it ends up becoming his legacy of really bungling it. And it hurts him in the future. That That is how I read it. Let me read you, if I may, a quote from Governor Rockefeller that he said to President Nixon on the telephone within hours after all the shooting had stopped on the 13th of September. Rockefeller and Nixon are on the phone, and this is recorded, and this tape was brought to light 
uh, just a few years ago by a, a professor in uh, New Hampshire named Teresa Lynch. And Rockefeller said to the president, quote, and when we went in, meaning the armed attack, we couldn't tell whether all 39 hostages would be killed and maybe two or 300 prisoners. That's what he said. That was his point of view. People had told him that this could happen. And yet, rather than come to the prison and negotiate, he sent in the troopers, realizing that well over 300 people could have been killed. It was definitely a recipe for it. That's the whole thing that gets me. I guess a part of it, he wanted to appear tough, but to send them in there with shotguns, it's just, as I said, that's exactly what you would do if you wanted to kill the maximum number of turkeys. Only in this case, they're talking about human beings who are just asking for, as you said, what, 28, 29 of 31 demands were so reasonable that they were met. Yeah. Yeah. After reading the Attica turkey shoot, Cindy Mellon, daughter of Richard Fargo, one of the guards held hostage, wrote of her shock at the extent of the cover-up. One of the examples she writes shocked me as well, and that's officials actually raiding funeral homes in the dead of night. What was their goal in doing so, and how did you uncover that detail? Well, that's one of the most bizarre aspects of it. I did not actually uncover it. I joined the prosecutor's office two years after the prosecution began because I wanted to learn about criminal law. And one of my fellow prosecutors, a guy named Brian Malone, told me about the Knight Riders. And what are the Knight Riders? Well, what happened is there was absolute consternation when Dr. John Edlin announced that all the dead hostages had been shot to death, which meant police had shot them because the inmates didn't have any guns. And so the state made a grand effort to disprove Edlund, to discredit him uh, both personally in some terrible personal attacks and his fact-finding. And they did two things, one which was perfectly proper, and that was they sent for some other pathologists to back him up, and they did back him up. And the other is they sent out these police at night to go to the funeral homes where the bodies had been returned from Edlund's office in Rochester and get the undertakers to sign statements saying, there aren't any bullet holes in these guys. They were killed by knives. In other words, they were trying to restore the official lie in this doomed to failure effort. What happened is one of the backup pathologists, Michael Bodden, who was later prominent for re-autopsying John F. Kennedy, Mike Bodden heard on the radio that an undertaker was saying that there were no bullet wounds in one of the dead hostages. And Mike got in his car and drove out to the funeral home late at night, walked into the room, rolled the body over and pointed to the bullet hole in his back. It's the kind of thing that, for me, reminded me, especially taking place in the 70s of Quincy M.E., which is one of my favorite shows as somebody who loved science and I guess also cares about justice, as hopefully we all do. You look at a county medical examiner, there he is up there, and he's looking at it, Dr. Edlund, and he's probably never thinks he's going to be in this position. And then he hears somebody officially lying. There are many of those stories here in the Attica turkey shoot of people not only willing to blow the whistle, but the sadness of them paying a price for just doing what's right and legal and what's in their job description. There were many of those people. What did you feel about bringing them back? Like many of them have passed on or no longer with us, but how did it feel to finally give those people a moment to put it in print that they, when the lights were on, did the right thing? 
I felt very good about writing about the people who did right. As far as the people who did wrong, I felt it had to be said and needed to be said, and I'm so glad I said it. But yeah, especially in my epilogue of this book, there's D. Quinn Miller, there's Mike Smith, there's Gary Horton, the lawyer who devoted thousands of his hours of time free to getting justice for the hostage families. There's Judge Michael Teleska, who, the federal judge who finally brought justice to as much justice as could still be salvaged to both the inmates who'd been uh, shot and tortured when they shouldn't have been, and to the hostages and their families. He's 88 years old now. I had the privilege, Nancy and I, my wife and I, had the privilege of sitting down with him for an hour last week. He's still handling cases, although not trials. They've named an office building in Rochester for him. He's just a great guy. He deserves every bit of credit that he can receive for what he did over Attica. Must be nice to have somebody who's alive and able to hear you tell the story because so many of the people are gone. It's a long time ago, 50 years on for you to still be telling the story and still try to set the historical record straight, especially since it's a warning to people today. The fact that New York State decided afterwards to try to make sure it didn't happen again is good, but we need continued reminders, I think, to cool our passions. It's hard, but that's what we need the law for. First Amendment, for instance, is there. The prohibition against cruel and unusual punishment is there. Not to protect great people. You know, we're not talking about a Girl Scout jaywalking. They wouldn't need any prohibition against torture by the state because they would, they just fine you. And the First Amendment, it doesn't need to protect home and garden because there's nothing in there that would bother anybody. But this is when we need it. And I find those polls and the reaction that people have often to things like the, say, the Fifth Amendment. Case comes along, they'll poll on it and whether or not you want to get rid of it. Well, that's when you need it. And that's when you need cool heads. And that's why we need leaders, I would say, that are going to go in there and do the job and not worry about what the future holds for them. It's, it's really a tough medium. And again, I'm not saying that I'm a perfect person. I don't think anyone's going to be nominating me for president anytime soon like Rockefeller wanted. But I just think that's what good history does. It makes us all look at it, put ourselves in those shoes and say, how can we live our lives better? Exactly. Exactly. Our guest is Malcolm Bell. He's the author of The Attica Turkey Shoot, Carnage, Cover-Up, and the Pursuit of Justice. Remember to toss him a like at facebook.com slash Malcolm Bell author. Usually at this point in the interview, I like to reintroduce the guest and I quote one of the reviews for the book. But when I went to Amazon, I saw such a long list of voluminous praise for the Attica Turkey Shoot that I thought I'd switch and ask you to choose one of them that really spoke to you, that really hit you in the heart and made you really feel like you'd spent this time well and you'd finally achieved your goal. So which of those remarks meant the most to you or really stands out to you after this long, solitary pursuit of justice? Well, uh, you know, I, may I answer that in three parts? Sure. Okay. Now, these these statements by these people on the Amazon website are just wonderful, and I really appreciate that my uh, publisher saw fit to put them up there. Um, that would be the first thing. I, I have difficulty choosing amongst them because they're they're so um, they mean so much to me. Uh, a second thing that happened that uh, really meant a lot to me: um, the Attorney General of New York, um, Eric Schneiderman, made a motion uh, in nineteen. 
well, it was, I think, 2013, to release some of the Attica documents that the state has still suppressed. And I joined that motion. And in 2014, Executive Deputy Attorney General Martin Mack called me up and thanked me for my interest and support for the Attorney General's motion. And that is the first time that any official has gone out of his way to thank me for anything I've done about Attica since I resigned in protest. But I've got to tell you, the thing that means the most, the statement that meant the most, is that the woman who was to become my wife read about what I was doing about Attica back in 1975 when I went public. And she said to herself, she'd like to meet that guy. And four years later, totally by accident, we did meet each other. We were married later that year. But unbeknownst to me, I had that head start when she met me. She already (laughs) formed a good opinion. Isn't it amazing how things in your life, something that I mention about history sometimes is we never know when we're writing history by something we're doing. Something as simple as her, I guess, picking up the article and reading about it or something like that will change your life, changes the course of your life and changes the course of your children's life. If you have children and you've done something in your life and sometimes it's that simplest thing. And I think that's why it's important to do the right thing when you can, because you never know who you'll influence just with your actions. You might influence some young lawyer who then is going to take up the law and do great things with his career for people that need help. I find that when I read biographies of our presidents, for instance, you give Abraham Lincoln a book. That's why I'll often say a book like The Attica Turkey Shoot, you pick up a copy off of our website by going to Amazon or wherever, however you get one, put it in the hands of some young person, put it in the hands of somebody who's studying law. You never know what influence that will have on somebody, and it can literally change the course of history. That's that's very true. The ripples spread. The ripples spread when you drop the stone on the pond. And how long have you been married? Since 1979. We got married that year. We realized that there was no reason to look any further. <laughs> You'd done all your shopping. You're ready to settle down. Uh, but good that something good could come out of this whole story. I bet you get asked often how you met. That's a good one. That's much better than, I don't know, we just met online and I, I swiped to her through whatever the apps people use today for dating are. <laughs> yeah, it, it worked out very well. It changed my life for much the better. Speaking of the Attica Turkey shoot again, you write about some of those lonely moments as you describe them. What kept you motivated for those years when you did feel alone, when you did have nobody officially thanking you in any part of the government, as you just alluded to? You're banging your fists against doors and your head against walls, trying to ensure that someday you'll hold this book in your hands. So what kept you motivated or was motivation never a problem because you were so sure in what you were doing and you were so determined to get justice? Well, you know, As far as being sure, I was very slow to see that a cover-up was going on. But as far as motive, when I learned about the Attica situation in depth, which was not until 73, as as it happened in 71, it was just one more tragedy in the news. But when I joined the prosecutor's office, I really saw that justice had to be done because 62 inmates had been indicted by then and zero police, even though the police had killed 10 times as many people as the inmates. They killed four and the police killed 39. It was very clear from the McKay report, a report that Rockefeller commissioned that came out a year after the tragedy, that the police had done much unnecessary shooting. And from law enforcement perspective, that means very likely criminal shooting. And so all along from start to finish, 
I really wanted uh, a fair and an effective prosecution along the lines of equal justice so the police would face the same justice as the inmates had that had filled Attica in the first place with convicted criminals. That was a constant. How I went about doing that changed as the circumstances changed, but I just felt it was really important to do that, and damn it, I was going to do it. <laughs> I don't mind being that simple-minded, but it was as simple as that. And that's that idea of whether you're in prison stripes or police blue, we're all supposed to have equal justice under the law. You write, quote, prosecuting only inmates during the months and years that mattered most must have been seductively pleasant, unquote. There's no pushback against throwing the prisoners in any more than unfortunate there was about turning this into a turkey shoot, as in the title, the Attica Turkey Shoot. You have that slow realization. You start to wonder what's happening. Not only is it something where they're not prosecuting any of the police for their criminal acts, but you write that you were being set up to fail. How did you realize that really you weren't being sent there to achieve justice, but to give a fig leaf here of covering the pursuit of justice and give the illusion that justice was being served? Well, that came very slowly because I was a puzzled that police hadn't been prosecuted yet when I joined the special prosecutor's office in 73, but was told that we hadn't gotten to it yet, which I didn't totally believe. But then right away, the special prosecutor who had been there from the start, Judge Robert E. Fisher, went back on the bench and Anthony G. Simonetti, his chief assistant, took over. And Simonetti and a bunch of other people uh, other prosecutors and I dove into the police cases right then and there and spent the better part of fall and winter of 73, 74 putting together these cases against the police who'd done wrong. And in that May of 74, this grand jury was convened and I was put in charge of putting evidence into it and I was going great guns. And the grand jury was getting what I said. I talked to some of them afterwards and they were right with me, prepared to indict, I believe, dozens of troopers. And then we come to the middle of the summer of 74, Nixon resigns, and Ford is president, and he nominates Rockefeller for vice president. And coincidental with that, coincidental in quotation marks, I believe, they began shutting me down. They switched me away from the prosecution of people who'd shot people they shouldn't have into the uh, obstruction of justice, which was blatant, but we weren't supposed to, <laughs> supposed to start it in the middle of doing something else. And then as I began to approach success in that case, they shut me out of the grand jury completely. And then when I found some uh, a lead to some very crucial evidence, instead of following up the lead to the evidence, they suspended me from the office. So I resigned in protest. And after I tried to get first Lefkowitz and then the new governor, Kerry, to uh, do the right thing with the prosecution, it was apparent that nobody was going to do the right thing. So I went to Tom Wicker at the New York Times and in April 75, the lid blew off the cover-up, I'm very happy to say. It took so long to be able to really tell the story. I don't know if it would be any better today, but I, I feel like it's harder to cover things up. It was just an entire wall of people, the entire state apparatus, which is one of the arguments against having 
such a powerful government. I mean, they can take everything away from you. And this is the case here. If they could take rights away from the most vulnerable people in a prison, it only adds to more anger later. Don't think that they can get justice. People don't trust the police. You watch those old 50s movies. Yet Abin Costello saying, little Johnny, if you have trouble, go talk to a policeman. Luke Costello actually did a PSA like that. This makes people afraid to do that. It's a, it's a lingering legacy, and it's important to read it now, I think, because even if you think, well, I'll never be in prison, well, you never know. And you never know if you're just going to be stopped at a traffic light. You never know what kind of thing is going to happen in your life. And that's why the law is supposed to be so sacred. And fortunately, it was to you. So we get the true story here in the Attica Turkey shoot. One of the details that jumped out at me was you said the National Guard stretcher bearers were the best witnesses to the brutality, and yet nobody bothered to question them. That spoke to me because I said, gosh, it's just organized incompetence, if that even makes sense, it seems, where they're just shutting things out. They just don't want to hear it. They don't want to ask questions. I wondered, because they weren't interviewed, how their stories made it into the historical record, and therefore you were able to include them in the Attica Turkey shoot. You know, there's another story of breathtaking prosecutorial incompetence. Their stories began to appear in September of 71, within days and weeks after the event happened, because newspaper reporters went to these National Guardsmen and got their stories. And then the official report of uh, the McKay Commission came out a year later and had a lot more of those stories. And my office interviewed some of the Guardsmen, and yet in the summer of 74, I had to fight for the right to question them and get their story before a grand jury. My superiors claimed not to see any need for it, which was total nonsense. Uh, it was, I mean, talk about obstruction of justice. It was obstructing justice not to question the witnesses to what happened. What, what happened uh, was that essentially the troopers and correction officers tortured over a thousand men who had surrendered the inmates who had surrendered and tortured them during that day. And some of them were tortured for weeks and um, others for days and, and Russian roulette was played with them. And uh, uh, bullets were not removed for days after the men had been shot. And it was, it was just a horror show. And my office claimed, huh. oh, what's, what do we have to go into that for? Again, just dehumanized. They were unpeople, to use the Orwellian term. They just didn't exist. No, Nobody seems to care. Yeah. You close the Attica Turkey shoot by writing, quote, While justice may have earned a mixed verdict at Attica, I close by recalling a number of people whom the quest for justice ennobled, a happy ending from which we may all take heart. Readers can meet those people in the book. You named a few of them already. But I wonder if you'd tell us some of the qualities that they have in common so that readers like myself and listeners can nurture and emulate those qualities whenever we're faced with injustice. How do we cultivate that in ourselves so that if our moment comes and we have to stand up, we're able to do what these people do in their chosen field and say, no, that's not the truth of what happened. Here's the truth. Well, I think first you have to have a conscience, know what's the right thing. I deplore the fact that civics is not taught as well in school as today as it was when I was there. What's right and wrong in terms of being a citizen? You have to be determined. You have to be unafraid. I take use that term guardedly because some fears are, are very legitimate, but you have to be willing to become involved. We suffer in this country in, in a great many ways from, from too much passivity. You hear about 
people demonstrating and, and breaking windows, which is really counterproductive and, and that sort of thing. But but I think the, the majority of people just don't want to be involved, don't want to disturb the pattern of their lives. You can't blame them if they have, you know, responsibilities. They're still raising their children or having other things. But there comes a time when it's really important to do the right thing. I wanted to name someone you single out for special praise in the book. That's Judge Michael A. Teleska. The wheels of justice move slowly. Sometimes you have to have people willing to push them up that hill for a long time. Why did you choose to single him out? Because he did such a great job with both the inmate settlement and the settlement of the hostages. And then he went beyond the call of duty. He called the surviving ones who were able to, to his courtroom in Rochester. He had them tell their full stories, as full as they could. And he encouraged them to keep going and added things and bring their medical records. And then he got 502 inmate stories from live testimony and affidavits and the stories of relatives of those who had passed on. And he summarized all 502 and put them in the federal reports. So he has created the best record we have and will ever have of what the law officers did to the inmates. And it's so ironic because that is the one thing that they worked very hard to suppress. They did not want the inmate stories coming out. They refused to interview inmates. They'd interview them for the first four days of the riot and then closed the interview before it came to the shooting. And Judge Teleska has created that historic record. I quote a good deal of it in my book, historian Heather Thompson, who got a Pulitzer Prize for her Attica book, Blood in the Water. She goes into it. But neither of us could do it full justice, and I hope someday some historian will tell the full story that Judge Teleska created by putting these summaries in, and he, as a seasoned trial judge, put in only the evidence, only the stories that he believed credible, and there's that treasure trove waiting for somebody. We've reached the time for closing statements, so I'll end with one final question. Chapter 30 of the Attica Turkey Shoot is titled, The Dead Do Speak, and you have an exclamation point after it. So it's emphatic to read it and to listen to what they have to tell us. But as the author, as the former prosecutor, after finishing the Attica Turkey Shoot, what do you hope readers will have heard those men who lost their lives say to them? Well, number one, that we're all human beings. We 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 live in what is said to be a predominantly Christian country. Jesus certainly believed we were all human beings, and yet people tend to forget that, unfortunately. I hope people will realize that we have a responsibility to treat prisoners as human. Yes, they've, they're convicted of doing wrong, of harming other people, and yet you take on a responsibility when you put somebody away for years, and you have to treat him as a human being, especially if you want him to treat you as a human being after he gets out. 95% of the prisoners do get out, and the way they treat us when they get out has a lot to do with how we treat them when they're in. We have to treat law officers more equally. I mean, most law officers do such a great job, and I'm so grateful for the jobs they do, but the ones who shoot people they shouldn't shoot should be punished for it, and that will discourage it. And I, I think that uh, body cameras are a helpful 
innovation and certainly all the iPhone cameras that record events. My gut feeling is that an officer who turns off his body camera during an event or claims it was off ought to be fired for incompetence. Things have got to improve. Black lives did not matter to the Attica troopers who bragged afterwards about shooting a black man. And that happened. It happened in Dr. Edlin's pathology lab, and it happened at the Holiday Inn in Batavia, 12 miles from Attica. What we see at Attica and what's important to see is that there is a lot of hatred, a lot of anger flowing beneath the surface. And if we see only what's pleasant and don't see that side, we've missed the whole story. And it's really important to see the whole story. Well, Malcolm Bell, author of The Attica Turkey Shoot, thank you for joining us and for sticking with this case for so many years to ensure the truth of that carnage and cover-up that's in your subtitle wasn't lost to the historical record. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and again, thank you so much for sticking with this and for giving us a unique and important read so the next time we hear Attica, even in passing, we actually know the full story of what happened there. Well, thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Again, the book is The Attica Turkey Shoot, Carnage, Cover-Up, and the Pursuit of Justice. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage, the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take in Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Malcolm Bell for joining us and for helping us to close the case on what really happened at the infamous Attica prison. Toss him a like at facebook.com slash Malcolm Bell author. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or facebook.com slash history author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west Sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.